Welcome to the AAUC monthly podcast series on building our collective American dream. I'm Dr. S.K. Lowe, President of Asian American Unity Coalition, or in short, AAUC. In this August podcast, we focus on what makes up the Asian Americans, the challenges we face, and how we can build a collective American dream together. Asian American is the fastest growing minority in the U.S. 2020 census. It has grown over 36% and constitutes roughly 7.2% or over 20 millions of the total U.S. population. Who are Asian Americans and how it becomes the fastest growing minority in the U.S.? What history did we not know about this group? How can Asian Americans make a difference in the U.S.? We are very fortunate today to have our distinguished and outstanding guest, Professor Frank Wu, President of Queens College, New York, and author of many publications on Asian Americans to give us a comprehensive account with storytelling details on the subject. Let's go to Jack Hanna, AAUC Executive Committee and Board Member, who is our host for this podcast. I'm Jack Hanna, and I'll be your host today. And I'm very pleased and excited to present to you Dr. Frank Wu, who discusses his insightful thoughts, ideas, and stories about defining Asian Americans and its challenges. Dr. Wu, a law professor by training, is currently the president of Queens College in New York City and is a renowned legal scholar and author. He's previously taught at Howard Law School and served as dean at Wayne State University Law School. His writings are acknowledged as conical in Asian American studies, especially debunking the model minority myth and the perpetual foreign syndrome. Welcome, Dr. Frank Wu, to the Asian American Unity Coalition's podcast series. We're happy and welcome you today for joining us in this episode of our podcast series. Dr. Wu, please describe to us your idea and concept of an Asian American. Thank you so much for having me. Please feel free to call me Frank. You know, I always explain there aren't any Asians in Asia. What I mean is there really isn't a well-developed sense of pan-Asian unity. To the contrary, it's usually been a euphemism for imperial identity. However, in the United States, Asian-American is the product of coalitions. The people who call themselves Asian-American are making a statement that they're reaching out across divisions and that they've put down new roots here. They're not sojourners. They're not tourists, they're actual Americans, and it's a declaration to themselves. The history of Asian American is fascinating. It comes from the 1960s. People don't really know this, but there were some student activists, Yuji Ichioka and Emma G, someone who's Japanese American and someone who's Chinese American. Now, their ancestors would have been fighting total wars against one another just two or three generations before they came up with this idea. But in the United States, well, we always hear you all look alike, right? And so as a product of the student activism, of the civil rights movement, of the revolutions that were occurring in the year 1968 in particular, a year that's so significant in world history, they came up with this concept of Asian American. Then the federal government, about a decade later, had OMB Directive 15. 
every time you fill out a, a form, you have a choice of different boxes to check. That's where it comes from. Federal government decided that it was going to keep track of this type of data to show the progress that we've made and the problems that remain so that it would have statistics. So from this combination of student activism in the 1960s and bureaucracy in the 1970s, we ended up with a category of Asian American, which doesn't exist in Asia, both because there aren't that many Asians and of course, they're not Americans. So Asian American is unique to the new world. Sometimes I hear people say, well, isn't Asian American balkanizing, dividing? It doesn't do that at all. It brings together people who recognize a common cause participating in our diverse democracy here. Every time I talk about Asian Americans, I emphasize the diversity within. Asian American brings together more than three dozen different ethnic groups. So uh, you have the ones that are the most numerous, right? Uh, those of Chinese descent, Indian descent, uh, Filipino and Korean. But Asian American includes South Asians, Southeast Asian refugees, the concept of Asia and the Orient, the Far East has changed over time. There was a time when it referred primarily to what we think of now as the Middle East. And so if you look at the shifting terrain, this category of Asian includes just such a vast number. And it includes people whose histories we need to, to emphasize and lift up and celebrate. So to me, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we should talk about the diversity within diversity, and we should include those who are left out. The other community that's just huge among Asian Americans are adoptees. Their parents are white. But this population of Asian adoptees, we're not talking one or two, we're talking hundreds, thousands. And you almost certainly, whoever you are, whatever your background is, you know of someone who is an adoptee or an adoptive parent. So within Asian American, you've got so many different ethnic groups, you've got different faiths, you've got different immigrant generations, right? Frank, let me transition from that presentation that you made to present day circumstances and the concept of developing political alliances amongst the Asian Americans and other communities throughout America in order to address the racial conflicts and challenges that we face today in the United States. Your ideas on that? So for a long time, it's been difficult for Asian Americans to get themselves heard to be included. Even when people talk about civil rights and diversity, there's a tendency to frame it in literal black and white terms, as if everyone fits neatly into just one of two boxes, either you're white or black, and there's no in between. For Asian Americans, it's difficult because of two images. One is the model minority, the other is the perpetual form. The model minority is this idea that Asian Americans are whiz kid, rocket scientists, overachievers, super successful, they've got no problems. But when Asian Americans are characterized as super successful as a racial group because of some racial secret, well, you know, that whitewashes bias. It becomes very difficult for Asian Americans to say, wait a minute, Asian Americans have the widest income gap of any racial group. Asian Americans are promoted into management at lower rates than anybody else. It also ratchets up racial resentment. How come the Asians are so successful? 
they're taking over, right? It's this yellow peril image of invasion. And worst of all, the model minority myth is sometimes false flattery. It's just a put down. We have legitimate issues, no different than African-Americans, no different than Latinos, no different than white ethnic groups, hate crimes, for example. With COVID-19, it's just been terrible. And initially, people just denied it all. It's just random. What's the big deal? Someone was spit on. They, you know, they shouted some racial slurs. The sorts of slurs that would be shouted on, on the playground as the teachers would look on and say, just reply. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, the words lead to the sticks and stones. And that's what we see in these videos. People shouting, go back to where you came from. You're making us sick. This is your fault. And then they shove them to the ground so hard that bones are broken. They kick them in the head until they're in a coma. They stab them. You got no problems. You're all just crazy rich Asians. What do you have to complain about anyway? You're doing better here than you would be in your homeland. So even when there are these hate crimes, it's hard for Asian Americans to make themselves known, to make themselves heard. But with the pandemic, just the scope of the depravity, all the videos that we've seen, it makes you realize, wow, there is something going on here. The other problem that Asian Americans face is this perpetual foreigner syndrome. It's, where are you from? Nothing wrong with that question. Of course you ask, where, where are you from? And I say, I'm from Detroit. And people say, now, where are you really from? I was born in the United States. This is my homeland. And there's nothing wrong with saying you're from China. That's what my parents would say. That's a perfectly good answer. But the people who want to know, they're eager to put me into a box, right? And I know from experience that this question, where are you really from, leads to just all sorts of craziness. Oh, you're from China. I visited the Great Wall last year. It's as if I should say, did you see my cousin? He hangs out at the Great Wall. We have this desire to know a person's ancestry because we suppose we can infer something. Is this, is this someone we can trust? And that's what folks are asking when they say to Asian Americans who've already answered, where are you from, as they choose to define themselves, right? That's the American myth. We get to define ourselves as individuals. It's not just about perception and feelings. It's about policies and opportunities. We have issues here. People are dismissive. They don't even consider it because we use a black and white framing, because Asian Americans are assumed to be the model minority without any problems, and because of the perpetual foreigner syndrome, which implies that if you're Asian, you're an outsider, you have no standing to make a claim, right? Because you're not a member of the body politic. You're not one of us. You're one of them. People don't really know the history of Asian Americans and civil rights. I'll give you a few examples. When Martin Luther King Jr. marched 1963 in Washington, D.C., gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. The Japanese American Citizens League, founded in 1929, was there with a delegation holding a big banner that said J-A-C-L. After internal debate, they decided that they had to be there. And of course, they didn't have the benefit of hindsight, knowing how important that moment would be. But they, they knew that it, it was significant. Look at the photos of Malcolm X. He draws his last breaths. There's a woman cradling his head, one of his closest colleagues and confidants, who traveled with him, who was there when he was shot. That's Yuri Kochiyama. Japanese-American homemaker, as the word was used then, who for her entire life, before then and afterward, was dedicated to the historic struggle for Black equality. 
So there are all these examples of bridge building, of coalitions that are ignored, forgotten, but the margins are making a new mainstream. I'll give you one last example. Look at the photos of Martin Luther King Jr. and the entourage with him as they march in Selma. At the beginning of the march, they're wearing Hawaiian leis. Hawaii had just become a state in 1959. This is before easy air travel and transportation overnight delivery. But there was a clergy member in Hawaii who knew Dr. King, who sent fresh Hawaiian leis to the deep south. And Dr. King and his colleagues put them on to show that this cause, emphasizing the struggle of African-Americans, also benefited so many. Most Asian Americans would not be Asian Americans if it weren't for the historic struggle for Black equality. So most Asian Americans today are foreign-born. They came from someplace else. And they were able to come because of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. That was a piece of legislation that undid all the racial restrictions. See, if you go back about a century, not only was there the Chinese Exclusion Act, there was an Asiatic barred zone defined by longitude and latitude. It included not only much of what we think of as Asia today, but some of what we might think of as the Middle East, include this vast terrain where people just couldn't come. And if you go back and read what leading figures, including presidents back then said, it was open bigotry. These folks should stay there. We don't want them here. It's not for these uh, brown folks, these yellow folks, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Muslims. And so you just couldn't come. It wasn't until Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1965 got the Immigration Nationality Act passed that there was fairness and Asians could start to come like other folks. Now, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act wouldn't have passed if it weren't for the 1964 Civil Rights Act the year before. Now, before the 1964 Civil Rights Act and before the Supreme Court decided the profound case of Brown versus Board of Education, racial discrimination and gender discrimination could be open. It was mandated. That was not easy. If it weren't for Lyndon Baines Johnson and the memory of JFK, President John F. Kennedy, who had been assassinated in Dallas, Texas, and the rightness of the cause, the justness of it, and political savvy, that law wouldn't have become law. So because in 1964, civil rights legislation passed, it became easier in 1965 for immigration reform to pass. That is the story of how Asian Americans owe a debt of gratitude to the historic struggle for Black equality. I would like to transition for this portion of the interview and ask you questions regarding education and your role as a university president. As a university president, what vision and direction do you have revising the United States secondary and post-secondary school systems academic programs regarding their emphasis and characterization of the AAPI community's role in American history and culture? The Asian American story is an American story. A few years ago, I stumbled across a book called Asians and Pacific Islanders in the Civil War published by the National Park Service of all people. They went through the rosters of the Union Confederate armies for that great internal conflict. Now, that was 1861 to 1865. And they found not one, not two, not dozens, but hundreds of Asian immigrant soldiers who fought. 
The cover of the book depicts a, a fellow from China who was adopted. Even back then, the Asian American story is captured by the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. You know that Chinese laborers built the western half of the Transcontinental Railroad. There's probably one sentence in the eighth grade U.S. history textbook that says that. But the story is so much more than that. So before the Transcontinental Railroad, the United States was not one was not united. So in 1869, that changed. And it changed because this massive infrastructure project, a, a speculative concept when it was announced, a transcontinental railroad. So the United States was brought together, and some said this is how manifest destiny was realized, brought together by the transcontinental railroad. Now, the western half was built by 10 and 15,000 Chinese laborers who constitute more than 90% of the workforce. The railroad was built by one line coming from the east to the west and another from the west to the east. The western half was built by these Chinese laborers who sacrificed life. You know, there's that phrase, a Chinaman's chance, meaning really low odds of success. What it comes from is the Chinese men had to be lowered in wicker baskets with dynamite, new technology, volatile, dangerous, to blast their way through sheer granite rock face of the cliffside. And sometimes the dynamite would go off while the worker was still in that wicker basket, blowing them to bits. So that's where you get the phrase, a uh, Chinaman's chance. But when they drove the four golden spikes at Promontory Point, Utah in 1869, they all knew this was the moment that the United States had arrived on the world stage had commissioned photographers to document everything, and they took these photos of the celebration. What you won't see is a single Asian face at the festivities. Even though Asian labor is what built the western half of the Transcontinental Railroad, they were excluded from the picture. That's a metaphor. That's symbolic. What followed afterward was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which expanded into an Asiatic barred zone. The late Corky Lee, a photographer from Queens, New York, an alumnus of Queens College, where I am fortunate to serve as president, he decided he would find the descendants of those railroad workers. So these folks are sixth, seventh, eighth generation Americans now. And they made a pilgrimage out to Promontory Point, Utah every year. And he restaged the photos with the family members, the progeny of those men who had united the United States in the context of your being a university president, should universities be, quote, socially just institutions, unquote, and if so, how? Universities, like other institutions, should not strive to be socially unjust, right? So if you're going to set a goal for yourself, better to be just than, than unjust. I serve as president of Queens College, part of the City University of New York. We're 20,000 students located in Flushing, Queens, the world's borough. And I didn't set out to be a college president. I wanted to come here because this is an institution that before diversity was a fashionable phrase, embraced it. It's a place that was created to realize the American dream. You know, higher education, that's the engine of the American dream. And when you look at a place like Flushing, Flushing is predominantly Asian. It's Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos living side by side in a way you're not likely to find in Asia. And they're living among people of Italian background, Greek background, people who are Jewish in a way that you're also not going to find. So it's Asian American. 
It's the diversity of Asia. You've got Bangladeshis. You've got folks of just every background you can imagine, all pursuing the American dream. That's what beckons the world over. It's what drew our parents or grandparents. This idea that your fate in life belongs to you. It doesn't depend on privilege or lineage. It doesn't depend on whether you're the firstborn son. You can make it for yourself. And Queens College, with the whole City University of New York system, was set up to empower people. Now, Flushing wasn't always predominantly Asian. It went through a transition in the 80s. I've actually met some of our alumni who remember when their family was the only Asian family in their neighborhood, not far from our campus. And then when Hong Kong uh, reverted to Chinese control in 1997, there was an additional influx. And that transition was not always easy. Flushing and Queens and Queens College has proved that the the American dream is still strong, still resilient. It still has power to attract people from the world over. The idea of coming to New York City, if you can make it in New York City. So that's why I'm here. And what an institution of higher education does is it gives people the training, the tools the credential, the network. And it's so important to have institutions that are accessible, even if you have an accent. There's nothing wrong with having an accent. Well, at Queens College, our students in, in their homes, they speak 83 different languages. That's a strength, not a weakness. That's what higher education is about. It's about bringing folks together who might not come together otherwise. And it's about treating them as equals and then giving them this opportunity to better themselves and their communities. Because we know that when one of our students graduates and gets a good job and becomes middle class or a little more upwardly mobile within the middle class, that's not just them. That's what we're in the business of doing. The idea is this is for everyone not just access, but access to quality, access to something that we can look at and measure and say in tangible terms, your life will be better. That's why our parents, that's why our grandparents sacrificed. My parents learned a new language. They put down new roots. They faced a bias that they, they didn't even know what they were facing because they believed so much in what this nation had to offer. And they became citizens, they became taxpayers, they were productive, they contributed. And my brothers and I, we're, we're proud to be Americans. And the next generation that's coming along is unique. They're citizens of the world. And America once held out these ideals, and the world admired them and emulated them. We can yet again be that beacon and beckon the world over. The pandemic has made the word unprecedented a, a cliche. None of us, no matter who we are, what our identity, what our walk of life, what our station in life, none of us has ever been through anything like this. But none of us has come out of a pandemic either. And I've never felt the same sense of relief and hope, the feeling that we can make the world anew, that here is an opportunity born of this terrible disease that has ravaged the world, that has touched so many of us directly and indirectly, and that is still going on. 
And yet now with vaccinations, as so many of us are able once again to venture forth and see old friends, meet new friends, even be among strangers, that we can resume this great experiment of the United States of America, a diverse democracy, a test of self-governance, not by the rule of royals or the privileged few. We can do right, not just by ourselves, for ourselves, but for others. And then that we can invite our cousins who don't enjoy the same material benefits that we take for granted here. We can bring them here. We can create new communities. We can say, yes, it's possible to be Asian American. And as we say that, it's possible for us to create a new, a different, a better America. Thank you, Jack. That was an excellent interview. We hope you find Frank's interview as fascinating and insightful as we do. My deep appreciation to Professor Frank Wu for such captivating narratives on the history, makeup, challenges, and the prospects of Asian Americans. Listening to this podcast, my main takeaways are, first, not only are Asian Americans geographically diverse from the Far East to West Asia, encompassing huge ethnic, cultural, and religious differences. They also have very diverse economic backgrounds, from war refugees to the highly educated immigrants to adoptees to the multi-generation residences steeped in their history in the U.S. Secondly, Asian Americans have always been part of the American fabric. Thousands of Asians sacrificed their lives in building the Transcontinental Railroad, and hundreds of Asians participated in the U.S. Civil War in the 1800s, even though they were denied citizenships. Third, many Asian Americans participated in the Black Civil Rights movements in the early 1960s and benefited from it in the 1965 immigration laws that allow a lot more Asians to legally immigrate to the U.S. Finally, through quality higher education, Asian Americans continue to contribute economically, socially, and politically to the U.S., which formed the basis for building our collective American dream. The AAUC podcast is supported by active individual and organization members. For more information about AAUC, please go to our website, asamunitycoalition.org. Thank you for listening to our AAUC podcast series on building our collective American dream. Subscribe and comment on our podcasts. Do tune in to our next episode, which will be on the last Sunday, September 26 at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. The topic will be on a global perspective of Asian Americans with a globalist and author, Dr. Parag Khanna. Music